Today I will be covering pages 25 to 36. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Matthew 5, 7. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Matthew 6, 14 to 15. Latin Derivatives of Mercy and Forgiveness As we begin, it is important to examine the etymology and scriptural origins of the word mercy and the word forgiveness. Doing so will allow us to understand the original intention of these words. This etymological examination includes an analysis of the Latin, Hebrew, and Greek derivatives. The Latin word for mercy is misericordia, and it can mean pity, compassion, or mercy, also tenderheartedness or sympathy. Thus, misericordia is something you exercise, bestow, or show to another person. It is also connected to misericors, meaning tenderhearted or merciful, Another related word is miseria, which means wretchedness, unhappiness, affliction, or distress. It can mean misfortune, misery, woe, or suffering. In addition, the word core literally means the heart as a physical organ or the heart figuratively as a seat of thought, mind, judgment, and emotions. The Latin word for forgiveness is vinia, and it means grace, permission, pardon, or forgiveness. The word vinia is related to viniol, which means able to be pardoned, excused, or forgiven. Thus, in traditional Catholic moral theology, a venial sin is one that can be pardoned or forgiven, in contrast to a mortal sin, which requires sacramental confession. Forgiveness is also related to the word remissio, which means to release, return, to ease, diminish, or remit. Examining the related Latin derivatives of mercy and forgiveness points to both the wide range and depth of meaning that these two words have. This richness can also be found when analyzing the words in the original Hebrew, i.e. the Old Testament, in the original Greek, i.e. the New Testament. Old Testament, Hebrew, meaning of mercy. In the Old Testament, there are a variety of ways to express the Hebrew understanding of mercy. For example, hesed can mean kindness or merciful. Ramim can mean compassion, pity, or womb. And hus or chus can mean to beseech, implore, make supplication for another person, or to be merciful. As Cardinal Christopher Sconburn pointed out, Hesed and Rakamim designate God's mercy. First tends to emphasize the masculine character traits of fidelity. The second, a mother's love. It is important to see that in the Old Testament text, references to mercy and merciful show a considerable amount of diversity and nuance. 
Old Testament meaning of forgiveness. In the Old Testament, nasah is one of at least three Hebrew words for the word forgive, and it literally means to lift or take away. In general, nasah is referring to something that once was there and is no longer there because it has been taken away. Another word in Hebrew for forgive is kalak, which means to forgive, pardon, or spare. Finally, the Hebrew word kafar or kippur means to cover over, expiate, condone, appease, make atonement, forgive, or pardon. Both kalak and kafar convey the idea that something worthy of punishment has occurred, but now the penalty has been paid. New Testament Greek meaning of mercy. In the New Testament, the Greek word elio is the verb form of the word mercy. It can mean to have mercy on, to help one afflicted or seeking aid, to help the afflicted, to bring help to the wretched, or to experience mercy. Essentially, elio is something that occurs in the context of a relationship, and it can take three basic forms. One, person to person. In this case, the virtue of mercy shows us how to be merciful. Two, God towards a person. In this case, God is mercy and shows clemency through the salvation that is offered to humanity through Christ. And three, the mercy of Christ. At his return, he will mercifully grant eternal life to those who have followed him. The noun form of mercy is elios, and it can refer to kindness or goodwill toward the miserable and the afflicted, joined with a desire to help them. Mercy in its noun form can also mean okitermos, which means compassion, pity, or mercy, and is sometimes translated as mercies. Related to this, it means a heart of compassion. This kind of mercy leads to a manifestation of pity or a longing to help someone. Lastly, splagnizomai is a verb form of the word mercy. It means to feel compassion, be moved with compassion, or feel sympathy for. When looking at the New Testament texts in reference to mercy and merciful, there is a wide range of possible meanings, but in general, mercy means showing heartfelt kindness, goodness, compassion, or pity to someone who is miserable or afflicted. New Testament Greek meaning of forgiveness. In the New Testament, there are two main concepts for forgive or forgiveness. One of these is charizomai, which means to grant as a favor or to forgive, pardon, rescue, or freely give. Another is the verb ephemi, which means forgive, lay aside, leave, let alone, let be, let have, omit, put away, remit, suffer, or yield up. Ephesus, which means deliverance, forgiveness, liberty, release, or remission, is the noun form of Ephemi. Generally, in the New Testament, forgive or forgiveness conveys the idea of setting someone free.
The etymological understanding of mercy and forgiveness in the Old and New Testaments as found in the Hebrew, Greek, and Latin is rich and diverse. These words convey more than just simple ideas. There is a depth to these words that is worth understanding more deeply. Furthermore, these languages show us that there are both a verb and noun form of mercy and forgiveness. This points to the reality that mercy and forgiveness are not only actions, acts of our will, or have an emotional component to them, but as we will see throughout the book, they are virtues that can be, that can be practiced in such a way that they become part of us. Before continuing, I want to mention that if you turn to the back to the endnotes, and you look at endnotes 1 through 10, um, you can find even more information on these words and their original and the original meanings behind them from the Latin, Hebrew, and Greek perspective. So that's footnotes 1 through 10. Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 to 7 may be the most written and studied teaching in the New Testament. In particular, the Sermon on the Mount is important to both St. Augustine's and St. Aquinas' understanding of Christian morality. From the very onset of Christianity, many famous church fathers have also attempted to explicate and understand the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and more specifically, in the Beatitudes. In many respects, the Beatitudes are the beginning of an outline for what follows in the Sermon on the Mount. For example, St. Augustine believed the Sermon on the Mount described the perfect standard of the moral life which presents all the precepts by which the Christian life is molded. According to St. John Paul II, in reference to St. Augustine, the Sermon on the Mount, which includes the Beatitudes, is ultimately the Magna Carta of Gospel morality. Contemporary scripture scholar Frank J. Matera described the sermon as a systematic presentation of how disciples must conduct themselves in light of the kingdom of heaven, or more simply, an ethic for the kingdom of heaven. Surveys Pinkers described the sermon as the feeling, the soul, the spiritual face of Christ. And through the sermon, we can perceive the sentiments of his heart. The Sermon on the Mount is the most faithful portrait of Christ we possess, and the most perfect life model we could be given. It is important to remember that the Sermon on the Mount is connected to love. As scripture scholar Rudolf Schneckenberg described, the law of the Sermon on the Mount can only be fulfilled by love. Hence, love becomes the deepest impetus of all who are striving purely and simply for the kingdom of God. In summary, the Sermon on the Mount is rich in both its description of the Christian life and the picture it gives us of Jesus, who not only taught and proclaimed this sermon, but essentially provides a real and lived example of it. Ultimately, the Sermon on the Mount is the means for Jesus to teach his disciples, past and present, how to live in practical and meaningful ways. The sermon found in Matthew's Gospel contains a wide range of teachings covering various moral issues, including anger, lust, 
marriage, swearing, revenge, love of one's enemies, almsgiving, prayer, fasting, not placing money before God, not giving in to worry, not judging others, the golden rule, and building your life on a strong foundation. According to New Testament scholar Benedict Viviano, the sermon is systematic, covering the main areas of ethical and religious life as understood in Israel. More importantly, the sermon addresses issues that pertain to mercy and forgiveness. For example, Matthew 5, 7, 6, 12, and 6, 14 to 15. These texts also provide simplified, a simplified version of Jesus' teaching and understanding of mercy and forgiveness. Later, we will examine Matthew 5, 7, 6, 12, and 6, 14 to 15 in detail because the Catholic Church's understanding of mercy and forgiveness is founded upon them. The Beatitudes. The Beatitudes in Matthew's Gospel begin with the Sermon on the Mount. They include Jesus' teachings on what it means to be poor in spirit. 5 verse 3. Those who mourn. 5 verse 4. Be meek. 5 verse 5. Those who hunger and thirst for justice. 5 verse 6. Be merciful. 5 verse 7. Be pure in heart. 5 verse 8. Be the peacemaker. 5 verse 9. And those who are willing to suffer persecution for righteousness' sake. 5, verse 10 to 12. The rewards for each of the Beatitudes are also listed. In contrast to the Lucan Beatitudes, scripture scholar, scripture scholar Luke Timothy Johnson stated, Matthew individualizes and interiorized the Beatitudes. The log logical question becomes, how can you and I interiorize them in our present situation? Fundamentally, the Beatitudes are a response to the human desire for happiness. As Pinkers stated, God has placed the desire for happiness in the heart of every man as a fundamental thrust, and he wants to re respond to it by sharing his own happiness with us if we will allow ourselves to be led by him along paths known to him alone. In fact, the Beatitudes are the path that Jesus gives us to happiness. Pinkers also pointed out that some would say the Beatitudes are a strange way to describe happiness. Quoting Pinkers, let's face it, one after another, the Beatitudes topple our choices and mock our contemporary scale of values. To satisfy our appetite for riches, they suggest poverty. In place of aggressiveness, they would have us meek. They would slake our thirst for pleasure with patience and love of justice and turn our hard-heartedness into mercy, our inclination to evil, to purity of heart, and our touchiness to peaceful spirit, while our vanity would be transformed into a carefree acceptance of insults and calmity. The Beatitudes seem to delight in promising us happiness and all we loathe and fear. End quote. At first, the thought of offering mercy and forgiveness to someone who has hurt us can bring up feelings of anger, bitterness, resentment, 
even rage and hatred. This does not feel like the happiness we desire. The promise remains that if we are obedient to God in this way, great blessings lie in store for us. We will explore this subject in detail later. Joseph Ratzinger described this reality from another angle. Quote, The Beatitudes spoken with the community of Jesus' disciples in view are paradoxes. The standards of the world are turned upside down as soon as things are seen in the right perspective, which is to say in terms of God's values, so different from those of the world. Accepting the paradoxical nature of the wisdom found in the Beatitudes is the first step in coming to understand them. As so often is the case, God's ways are not often my ways. God's timing is not my timing, and my plans do not always match God's plan. Yet God's ways, timing, and plan will lead to my happiness as I surrender and trust in him. The Beatitudes were described in a variety of ways by church fathers. For example, St. Gregory of Nyssa proposed, quote, We are made the friend of the Blessed One through the blessings of the Beatitudes. For Beatitude is the property of God par excellence. Hence, participation in the Beatitudes means nothing else but to have communion with the Godhead. Close quote. Thus, for St. Gregory, the Beatitudes help lead us into a unitive state with God, which leads us into a closer and deeper relationship with God, especially as we learn to live, act, think, and feel as God desires. One of the classic ways to understand the Beatitudes has been in relation to the gifts described in Isaiah 11, 2, and 3. St. Augustine stated, quote, The sevenfold operation of the Holy Spirit of which Isaiah speaks seems to me to correspond to these stages and sentences. Close quote. Augustine paired them in the following ways. Fear of the Lord or reverence corresponds to the poor in spirit and those who are persecuted for righteousness. Piety or fidelity corresponds to the meek. Knowledge corresponds to those who mourn. Fortitude or courage corresponds to those who hunger and thirst for justice. Counsel corresponds to the merciful. Understanding corresponds to the pure of heart. And wisdom corresponds to the peacemakers. When referencing specifically to the fifth beatitude, Augustine explained, quote, Counsel corresponds to the merciful. For this is the one remedy for escaping from so great evils that we forgive as we wish to be ourselves forgiven and that we assist others so far as we are able, as we ourselves desire to be assisted, were we not able and of them. It is here said, blessed are the merciful. Close quote. Thus being merciful fits under the gift of counsel, which helps us to choose wisely and reasonably, rather than to blindly follow the lead of our emotions, which when it comes to a need to forgive someone who has hurt us, is often connected to a need to overcome excessive anger, resentment, or bitterness. 
Aquinas addresses the Beatitudes in several of his writings. He described the Beatitudes as that to which, quote, which all the other teachings are reduced, close quote. More specifically in the Summa Theologia, with regard to the eight Beatitudes, Aquinas held that Beatitude, happiness, was the ultimate end of human life. He also believed that we move toward it through the work of the virtues and the gifts, but most especially through the Holy Spirit. Aquinas saw the Matthean Beatitudes as perfect acts, coming through the work of the virtues, as they are inspired by the grace and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, truly living out the Beatitudes requires us to receive God's grace and to be open to the help and encouragement of the Holy Spirit. In relation to this, Pinkeris stated, Beatitude issues from the exercise of the virtues animated by charity, the heart of perfection. Under the inspiration of the gifts which cause us to act with excellence and render us more docile to the Holy Spirit. Close quote. Living out the Beatitudes leads to holiness, and while they build upon the virtues, they are a way of living that flows out of your relationship with the Holy Spirit, who can raise your natural capacity and nature to super, supernatural heights. In my own life, whenever I find myself needing to grow in a specific virtue, I will bring that to prayer and or ask others to pray on my behalf. I've come to realize that there is a tangible difference in what I experience when I approach it this way. Time and time again, I am aware that the grace to cultivate and practice the virtue is being released to me. And as I cooperate with the Holy Spirit, I am able to make much more progress than if I had not brought it to prayer or had not asked for the intercession of others. According to Aquinas, the reward that comes from the living the Beatitudes begins in this life and reaches perfection in the life to come. The Beatitudes themselves can be divided into three groups. The pleasurable life, i.e. an abundance of exterior goods from riches, honors, or in following of your passions. To beatitude, i.e. poor in spirit, the meek, and those who mourn. Number two, the second consists of the beatitudes that remove obstacles of the active life, i.e. what we render to our neighbor, either as a debt or a spontaneous gift. To beatitude, i.e. those who hunger and thirst for justice, and those who show mercy. And the third consists of beatitudes that remove obstacles for the cultivation of the contemplative life, i.e. the final beatitude itself, or some beginning of it, and the beginning of your ability to experience final beatitude, i.e. pure in heart and the peacemakers. It is important to note that the beatitudes of the active life order us toward the good of our neighbor. Without this ordering, we are often tempted to have a disordered love of our own good, which leads us to withdraw from seeking the good of our neighbor. For example, sometimes I can find myself drawing back from a given work of mercy by distancing myself from the suffering of the other person. By choosing not to engage in another person's suffering, 
I am not showing mercy or charity. Thus, my actions, which are either fear-based or driven by selfishness, are not merciful. Mercy is an act of charity, and it involves me freely entering into another person's suffering out of love. The Beatitudes promise mercy to the merciful, which, which ironically is a promise of eventual liberation from all suffering, even if, even if that does not fully come until you experience the gift of eternal life with God in heaven. Father Renero Cantalamesa OFM, the preacher to the papal household during the last three pontificates, St. John Paul II, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, and Pope Francis, propose that the Beatitudes are the self-portrait of Christ, and that in each Beatitude, a glimpse of the character, virtue, and essential qualities of Jesus are shown. In reference to the Beatitudes, American biblical scholar Raymond Brown stated, been revered for expressing succinctly the values on which Jesus places priority. American scripture scholars Curtis Mitch and Edward Seary have also stated, and quote, Jesus' Beatitudes depict the chief characteristics and dispositions his disciples are to possess, close quote. Scripture scholar Daniel J. Harrington mentioned that the sermon, quote, has implications for both personal and communal life, close quote. In summary, the Beatitudes can be described as the pathway to happiness, a guide to friendship with God, and connected to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, as stated in Isaiah chapter 11. The Beatitudes also help us to remove sinful obstacles of the pleasurable and active life and are the guideposts for cultivating the contemplative life. Finally, the Beatitudes essentially give us a succinct portrayal of Jesus' teachings, a mere image of the character of Jesus and a standard for the behavior for all his disciples. These different insights point to the importance for Christians to reflect upon and ultimately integrate the Beatitudes into our lives. This section has covered page 25 to 36. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, as we reflect on Scripture, in relationship to mercy and forgiveness. We reflect on the different ways to understand these words. We reflect on your teachings, Jesus, and the Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount. Help us to apply them to our lives. Help them, help us to live them out. Send your Holy Spirit to help us to embody the Beatitudes in our lives. And, be out and to embody an ability to extend mercy and forgiveness to others and to ourselves. And we pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.